Amiga, the first personal computer that gives you a creative edge. Amigos, the podcast about everything Amiga. Amigos is a proud member of the Throwback Network, your home for quality retro podcasts. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron Dowdy and John Bodokar Schaller. All right, welcome to the Amigos interview series. Uh, I'm joined, my name is John, and I'm, I'm joined today by Paul Shaw from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, hi, Paul. Thanks, John. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here. And uh, we're just going to be talking Amiga. Uh, Paul, what was your first exposure to the Amiga? Well, the, the first time I heard about it, I had a, a friend called Chris. This was when I was in primary school, and it would have been around... Uh, 1987 or 1988, and he was talking about this amazing computer that had uh, come out with really good graphics and sound. And I assume he would have... This is probably around the time of the release of the the A500 and um, the A2000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I heard about all that, but I didn't get into the scene at that point. Uh, it wasn't until a couple of years later, and in that two years, I was I was into the PC because my my dad had a uh, an IBM XT with CGA graphics, so he had like four color graphics and no sound at all, just a beeper for <laughs> for sound. And I would look through computer magazines, and I'd see all the all the games. Uh, the screenshots of the games and, you know, they had the, the PC screenshot, which was either CGA or maybe EGA. So pretty awful graphics, you know, not many colors, pretty low resolutions. And then next to it in the same ad that have the Amiga version and the Amiga version was always stunning to look at. There was just a world of, of difference between the two in these computer game ads. And I thought that machine is just amazing. And then eventually I started, um, I decided I was going to buy one, but I was only, you know, I was 13 years old at that point. This was about 1989, 1990. So I started saving up money, saving up Christmas money, birthday money. And then I eventually bought uh, an Amiga. Now, uh, Set the scene for us. Where where did you purchase it? Where was it in a department store in a computer store? I bought it. It was an Amiga five hundred, and I bought it from a place called Maxwell Computers in uh, Collingwood in Melbourne, and they were a, a specialist computer store. But they they did a lot of Amiga stuff. So from what I recall, then Amigas were in some of the bigger stores, uh, and they were also in some of the some of the specialist computer stores as well. And I went to this store because uh, my dad again he knew the owner of this store, so I actually I think I got a like a fifty dollar discount or something like that. And it was also uh, because it was a machine that had been a, um, a return. So someone had bought it initially, there was something wrong with it. It was sent back to Commodore, and then they sold it as 
uh, a machine that had, you know, had a fault, but it was still new. So I got a, a, I think it was $50 discount and it cost me $750 Australian, which, which is around $600 US. Okay. That, that kind of price. Now is, um, did you notice, and I mean, this is kind of more than just the Amiga, but for computers at the time, game consoles at the time, uh, did Australia, you know, was it a pretty even conversion for what prices were in the West versus what you were paying for down there? Well, it's it's interesting because in those times, pre, pre-internet, there wasn't a lot of focus on the difference in pricing between America and Australia. Now, these days, if there's even a slight difference in price when you convert the money over between America and Australia. There's all sorts of news articles written on it, you know, like sure. if, if there's an iPhone and it's $200 more here, you know, they'll write an article about how uh, Australians are paying uh, an Australia tax for being so far away from the rest of the world. Back then, people weren't aware of that. So I didn't know really uh, what they were selling for in America at that point. It wasn't probably till I started buying Amiga magazines, actually. Right. That was the next question. Was, uh, surely when you started getting magazines from either you know Europe or the United States, you saw the prices that they were selling for there. Yeah. Yeah. At, at that point, I did, but I was still only you know 13, so I don't know if I bothered to do the currency conversions and all that kind of stuff. Right, and even if you did um, notice that you were paying more, what could you do about it? Yeah, that's right. It's completely different to today where you can, where you can, like in Australia, you can get anything from America. You can, even if the company won't sell it to Australia, you just use a rate shipping service. You know, it's easy to get the postage quote. It's really simple now, but, but back then it would have meant buying through like a mail order house and kind of hoping you you don't get ripped off by them and that they're legitimate and everything goes okay. So back then people just bought from the from the local computer store. Yeah. Uh, or or the local department store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um what did uh, the uh the 500 come with? So what I bought was uh, a starter pack. So it had um, it had a box with the actual Amiga in it, and that was like a, a plain Amiga 500 box. And then it also then this was sitting in another box, and this other box was like all the starter pack stuff. So it came with a one of the RF modulators, the the A520 modulator. It had a a joystick, which was a terrible quality joystick. <laughs> It had uh, a few games. I think it was uh, Indiana Jones and it's FA18 Interceptor and a couple of other games. And it had uh, Kind Words, which was a, a word, popular word processor back then. Okay. So, so it wasn't a bad pack. It was probably, it was probably you know forty or fifty dollars more than just buying an Amiga with nothing else. Um, and it also, of course, it had Workbench. It had Workbench 1.3. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you buy the computer with any illusions of uh, doing schoolwork on it or anything like that, or was it going to be a strictly a games machine for you? Yeah, interesting, because the, the Amiga had 
a reputation in Australia for being a games machine. But I was planning on on doing schoolwork and that kind of thing. So, so uh, kind words I did use, and that was an absolutely atrocious word processor. It would <laughs> it would uh, crash. Probably, if you were using it for a few hours, you'd expect at least one crash in that time. So you're constantly hitting the save right, button. Right, I it. remember those days. Hoping, <laughs> yeah, hoping it doesn't crash. You know, but to buy a a good word processor for the Amiga back then was at least a couple of hundred dollars, at oh, least. Yeah, yeah that what expensive. was I mean? This is this is something I don't know much about. Do you do you recall what was kind of the marquee word processor for the Amiga? Uh, there was one. I'm just trying to remember. It was called Word Something. Um, I can't remember the exact Words Worth. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was called Words Worth. But it was it was so expensive that it wasn't. It was never even on my radar to buy you know because for example um that was the best one and it might have been three hundred dollars or something like that you know and that that kind of money then would have bought you a monitor for example oh sure so so and monitors went weren't cheap back then yeah um, yeah that's in fact the, the, the well what a what what i um did initially i used the the rf uh, modulator and um yeah, I plugged in it to the TV initially because the monitor, you know, was so expensive. Um, and then um, saved up for a monitor eventually. And that, yeah, that that was a, like a Philips uh, Amiga monitor. Mm. So, yeah, the, the monitor was an interesting story too because there was two two popular monitors back then. There was the, you know, the 1084S and there was this um, Philips. It was called the, the CM8833. And the story was that Philips made both monitors. They made the Commodore one as well. And apparently what used to happen was Philips would look at all the tubes that they were producing and the best tubes they'd put in their own monitors and the other tubes went into the Commodore monitors. Hmm. Interesting. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, Samsung makes the panels for Apple displays. And uh, I remember when I was working at Apple, you always used to hear about Samsung, you know, they save all their best panels for their own displays. And, it's, you know, this kind of thing has been going on for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you look at the um, Amiga format, at the time, the reviews of the monitor, they did used to rate the Philips one as a better monitor in terms of, of picture quality. They were quite a similar monitor, but it was always regarded as the better one, so that's why I went for the uh, the Philips one. And how much did that set you time. back? That was uh, $399, yeah. And it had, you know, had the built-in speakers. The good thing about that monitor too was that you could you could plug in a, a VCR into them and you could use them as a TV as well. So it just had a regular, you know, it had had the Amiga port at the back mm-hmm. and then it had like um, you know one of the yellow uh, video ports as well and you could just plug a 
you could just plug a VCR straight into it and use it as a TV. So, so you really felt like you were getting, you know, more for your money going that way because you could set that up in your room or whatever and have your TV and your monitor all in one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a, a pretty good buy. Yeah. Now, um, you know, aesthetically, aside from having the the built-in speakers, uh, did it look pretty much the same as the 1084? No, it looked quite different. Uh, it was it was a good color match. Like they were both very similar colors to to match the Amiga. Mm-hmm. The Philips one had a very rounded front to it. It was a little bit more of a a modern. Uh, design and the Commodore one was a little bit more square-like. The Commodore one looked more like a regular computer monitor, and the Philips one looked a bit, bit different. So visually, yeah, there was, there was a difference there. There was a fairly big difference visually. And what was? I, I apologize if you said before. What was the uh, the 1084 selling for at that time? That was about the same, about the same, from what I remember. Yeah, most people did buy the 1084 because that was, you know, the, the Commodore one. And I think even now, like, a lot of people probably prefer the 1084S because it's the Commodore monitor. Yeah. You know, it's the, the genuine the Commodore set one. of all the yeah. branded stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think a lot of collectors now probably probably prefer the Commodore monitor over the Philips one. Now, do you still have that that very Amiga that you bought? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I do. It's very sentimental because it's the first computer that I ever bought. And I pulled it out about um, two years ago, and I hadn't used it in years. It had been uh, in storage at my, my parents' place for... Um, just thinking for how many years, probably from like um, 1994 till, say, 2013. Wow. So was that? that's, all, that's almost 20 years. Yeah. And I, um, I'd sold the monitor actually years ago, so I didn't have the monitor. So I was trying to figure out how I could even get it connected to something, and then I realized I'm going to have to use the A520 modulator. So I plugged in the, the modulator and I managed to get it going. But those uh, modulators, they don't plug in very well to the back mm-hmm. of the Amiga. They're notorious for being a bad connection. Yeah, yeah, horrible. Like They don't, they don't have screws to screw <laughs> in or anything like that, and they're a bit wonky. So, you know, the picture was coming on and off as I was, I was wiggling the thing, and eventually the picture just went and what had actually happened was something it had done something to the Amiga at one of the chips had blown from Mm -hmm. from that wiggling yeah so that a500 is not working at the moment uh so there's some problem with the motherboard that I haven't I haven't worked it out yet what it actually is so that's probably going to be a bit of a, a project to to get that going again uh, I have also thought about getting one of the new uh, motherboards from um, from Gens, you know, the Amiga Reloaded motherboards that right. are going to be coming out. Uh, so I've, I've I've toyed with the idea of replacing it with with one of those. Uh, and those are just supposed to be. I mean, you literally take the old one out and then you set it in and it fits in perfectly, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then your your add-ons are pretty easy to 
to add your flicker fixer and your accelerator and mm-hmm. it, it brings it up to a more modern specification pretty easily because you know, an A500 is quite hard to to expand as, as well. An original uh, A500 is is fairly tricky to expand compared to the 1200. So so maybe I'll get one of those and just keep the old motherboard uh, to fix another day. <laughs> Yeah, well, that I, I think I'd probably lean that way just because, you know, especially if you have an eye on expanding it any further in the future. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's funny that you mentioned that about the RF modulator because my, my co-host Aaron, he had a buddy that the exact same thing happened to his Amiga. He was, you know, fooling around with the RF modulator. You know, it was set up against the back of a wall, and when he yep. pushed the Amiga back, it just hit it the wrong way, and boom, that was the end yeah. of the meter. Yeah, it's funny because back in the day, I remember the connection wasn't that great, but I never had any problems with it. So obviously over time, you know, mm-hmm. as um, things degrade a bit, it's it's brought that problem on as well. But uh, but luckily, I do also own an A1200. So, so that is the Amiga machine that I'm using. Now, when did you when did you get the uh, the 1200? That one I bought about. Uh, two years ago, and that that machine, I bought it from a guy in uh, the Netherlands. So I bought it from from Ami Bay, mm-hmm. and it was yeah, it was it's quite hard to actually get one in Australia. Really? You, yeah, there's there's not that many that come up on. There's some that come up on eBay, but but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I specifically wanted one in very good condition. I wanted a really white uh, case, sure. and I wanted one that had been ideally recapped and sort of been looked after a bit. So yeah, it was. Eventually, I had to to get one from from overseas. Uh, otherwise, I was going to be waiting quite a while for a, for a good one to come up on. Uh, on eBay, I also wanted one of the Commodore ones rather than an ESCOM because um, I'm, yeah, I'm sentimental towards <laughs> Commodore because when I was into the Amiga, it was you know it was the Commodore era of it. Oh so yeah, I specifically, specifically wanted the Commodore badge on it. Yeah, I think that you are uh, in line with pretty much every other fan of the Amiga. I, I've never heard of anybody saying, "Boy, I really want that ESCOM one." You know, it's yeah, it's always, it's always you, you want that that cool. Uh, Commodore badge on it. Now, when um when you were using when you first got the 500, uh, did you have a lot of friends that also had machines where you swap in games and things like that? Yeah, not really. I had I knew uh, a couple of people with uh, Amigas, but not not really a lot. You know, like in Australia, the Commodore 64 was absolutely massive. Like every second person had a Commodore 64. It was just huge. The Amiga was nowhere near as big, but it was still, it still had a degree of, of popularity. So I only knew a couple of, of people who, who had them. Just as an example, if you went into the typical computer store in Australia, say in a shopping center somewhere, they'd have a wall of Amiga stuff. You know, like they might might be a fifth of the store or a sixth of the store was dedicated to Amiga. So it was quite popular, but it wasn't it wasn't huge either. Right. I think that the C64, I mean, if it was anything there like it is here, was more of a cultural phenomenon where... Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and of course the price, you know, was the, the main, you know, one of the main reasons. I mean, it was just, it was so inexpensive so early on that everybody just got one. And, uh, and it was, it was hard to, uh, to wean people off that, you know, when the Amiga came out, of course it blew everything else out of the way in terms of graphics, but, uh, you know, the sheer volume of games that were available on the C64, mm. uh, was, a big a big deterrent to anybody wanting to upgrade that didn't immediately have that money yeah 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 the c64 was like priced so it could be you know the the christmas present kind of thing Mm -hmm. from the the parents or whatever whereas the the amiga was just a fair way beyond that you know it was it was not something someone would just go out and buy as a a present it was you know a fair bit more expensive Mm mm-hmm um, and then, yeah, so I had that 500 for, for a couple of years. Well, I still have it now, obviously, but I used it for a, a couple of years until uh, about 1992. And, of course, 1992 is, is when the 1200 originally came out. And, uh, you know, I was reading all the magazines, Omega Format, Omega World, and I read about this, this 1200. And I thought that machine, you know, is is the machine to get, you know, because it's, it's got a better processor, it's got a lot more RAM, you can add a hard drive easily. Uh, and so I was, I was getting ready and I was going to buy one. And then I thought, oh, look, I should just do a bit more research on, on what else I can get for my money because, you know, PCs were coming down in price by that point, around 19... Uh, 92 and I, I, I firstly I called up for a, a price at my local computer store on a, a 1200 with uh, two megs of RAM and a 40 meg hard drive so the basic 1200 plus plus a hard drive and the price quote was something like $1600 which really blew me away how high the, the price mm-hmm. was I mean, that's well above a comparable PC at that time, right? Yeah, well, yeah, it would have been um, it would have been sort of comparable to a pretty good 386 mm-hmm. or a very low-spec 486. Right, you know, so you're talking about, you know, almost top-of-the-line machines. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Something really strange happened in Australia with the pricing of the 1200 because it was way more expensive than America and I think a fair bit more expensive than the UK as well. Like in America, I think the base price was was uh, $400 mm-hmm. US for a, a 1200 when they first came out. That's without the hard drive. And, mm-hmm. and here, like, I think the base price without a hard drive was was 1200 it was it was like it was a double wow after currency <laughs> conversion it was like double you know it's unbelievable. something yeah something really strange happened with with commodore australia and in the way that they priced that machine um so i was just just blown away at the price and i i f- yeah for f- i was instead of spending 1600 i think i spent uh, about two two thousand on a pc and you could get like a 486 with Twice as much RAM with an 80 megabyte hard drive with super VGA graphics mm-hmm. and um, 
And then you had the whole world open to you as far as software or whatever you wanted you could get. Yeah. Yeah, the downside was you didn't get any sound for that. You had to buy a sound card. Mm. But but back in those days... There wasn't um, a whole lot going on in the sound world in the PC anyway, right? Uh, you could get... It was just the, the dawn of all the Sound Blaster era mm-hmm. and CD-ROM. So you could get like a pack with a pretty good Sound Blaster card and... A, a CD-ROM drive for about 400. So lots of people were were buying those upgrade kits from from Creative. Mm-hmm. It was called Creative, the company that that uh, made it. And you'd also get about um, about 10 CD-ROMs. You'd get like an encyclopedia, and you'd get a few games and oh, yeah, a couple yeah. other applications. And I think yeah. uh, the uh, they they included the joystick port on the sound card too, right? That's right. Yeah, had the joystick port as well um because prior to that you had to have like a joystick uh card from what i remember Mm -hmm. and the joysticks were terrible on the pc like they were analog so you had to adjust the sensitivity so it was just right and i remember on on the early pc that my my dad owned which was an xt constantly adjusting the x and y axis to get this (laughs) joystick working and, but the Amiga had just a digital joystick, so it was you didn't have to adjust anything. It just worked properly. Yeah. Uh, so there was a big difference with the, the joysticks. But by the time the 486s started coming out, that that resolved those kind of uh, issues. Yeah. I but still the funny thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. No, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, I was, the, the funny thing is that 1200. I was, you know, I was thinking of buying one, but I never actually saw. A 1200 in Australia at all because I just rung the, the store which was a few suburbs away I never actually went to go and look at them I just rang up for, for a price quote but I never saw a 1200 in any other shop ever in the country so maybe because of the, you know because of that huge price increase uh, they were either in and out so fast that you missed it or possibly never even shipped yeah yeah from from what I've heard like looking on the internet recently about the 1200 in australia it was available at some specialist stores and some department stores like the really the ones in the uh in the cbd which is downtown in america like say the biggest store in melbourne might have had one Mm. but that was about it it wasn't it wasn't very available at all Whereas the 500 was available in a lot of stores and the 600 was relatively available as well. The 1200 was just, yeah, never, never saw one. Hmm. How odd. Well, yeah. now, did you ever see any of the later models in stores? Uh, the, well, I never saw a 3000. Um, the 2000, which are obviously earlier machines, mm-hmm. I, I I saw one in some specialist computer stores and also a friend of mine had a 2000. So I saw some of them. Uh, The 4000, I never saw one either. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people saw the 4000. (laughs) That that did not get a wide release. No, no. The first time I actually saw a 1200 in the flesh was two years ago when when mine arrived in the mail. That was the first time I'd ever seen one in the flesh. So was it worth it? Yeah, yeah, it's a 
it's a great machine because it can be expanded so easily. Mm-hmm. It's easy to add an accelerator card. You know, there's lots of uh, lots of Blizzard cards out there, and there's also new ones being made. The flicker flick, the flicker fixes are really easy to add as well. You know, you've got your your Indivision, and obviously the RAM's easy to add because of the the accelerator, and it's got AGA as well. So, so it's sort of got everything you you would want really, except obviously it doesn't have the big case. But right. apart from that, it's you know it's a really good enthusiast machine. It's really stood the test of time that machine. Oh yeah. To me, the 1200 is the ultimate Amiga. I mean, it's got the expandability, but it's also got that classic form factor, the all-in-one form factor. And Yeah. It's great. Now, Yeah, it's a, a classic, isn't it? And it is. The, the one I always drooled about was actually the 3000, because when I was big on the Amiga around 1990, that was that was the machine to have, you know, but that the price of that was just, yeah, it might have been 5000 for just the basic box. And wow. You, you still got to buy the monitor and yeah. Yeah, that is unbelievable. It's unbelievable that, that, you know, the, of course, I guess the, you know, the, the main market for those were all of the, you know, video production houses that use video toaster and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. And they're still pretty hard to come by, um, these days, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so many machines have got, battery damage so many of those those big box machines have got battery damage and yeah they, they but they still get good prices uh on ebay and amibay and and that kind of thing now what do you uh what are you doing on the amiga these days well i mainly use it for for games mm-hmm. so yeah i've got a uh a cf card with with a couple of hundred games on it, so you know every uh, every month or so, I I turn it on and um, play games for half an hour. Uh, and there's so many games on it, you know, it's good to try out games you've never actually played before on the Amiga. Maybe the games you never you always wanted to buy but you never did. Right? Is there one that comes to mind? A game you saw in the shops and you said, "Boy, I'd love to have that," but you never bought it. Um, no, I used to buy quite a lot of games. So the ones I really wanted, yeah, I did end up buying. There was, there wasn't one that I really wanted and I didn't buy. There there was, there was a few that I really used to play a lot. Um, Lotus 2 was, was probably my favorite, favorite game on the Amiga, Lotus Turbo Challenge 2. Mm Mm-hmm. That that was a really popular game back in the day. You know, obviously it was a, a driving simulator, and it had really spot-on graphics. You know, the graphics were really good, and the gameplay was just right in it as well. Now, I believe with Lotus Two, could you actually network two Amigas together and yeah. play? <laughs> yeah, you could. You could. I remember that option on the screen. I I, I never did it though because. I didn't know many people with Amiga, so I never actually did it. But I remember that option always being there. So, you know, it'd be a good thing to do today, actually, to get a couple of Amigas together and and try that out. You know, have the two two monitors or, or yeah. two 
TV yeah, you screens. Just set them up right next to each other and uh, and battle yeah. it out. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. There was also, of course, the split screen. So, yeah, you could do the split screen option as well and have your two mm-hmm. two joysticks going. Now, do you still, um, or actually, not even do you still, but you know, you mentioned the word processor, but uh, is there anything else that uh, you know, non-game applications that you use a lot on the Amiga? No, that that was the main uh, one because. So I never used any paint programs much or anything like that. There was a rendering program that I got free with uh, Amiga format, and you could like render landscapes, and that that was quite an interesting program to use. The rendering used to take ages; like you would you would set it up, and then it would start rendering, and you'd leave it for a couple of hours, and then you'd come back, and then it would be would be finished. So I used to use that quite a lot. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, yeah, I don't don't remember the name of that. So that it software. would just procedurally generate landscapes. Is that how it worked? Yeah, you used to you used to plot out things in the landscapes that you wanted, and I think heights of mountains and things like that. And then it would start calculating it all. Oh, yeah. well, that that sounds yeah. really neat, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting bit of software, but it was just on the cover disc mm-hmm. of, of Amiga format, you know. Sometimes you'd get full applications on the on the cover disc, um, which is actually interesting because later on I was reading, you know, some some people thought that the putting full applications on the cover disc is is one of the things that contributed to the downfall of the Amiga in terms of software often being free, particularly mm-hmm. old versions, mm-hmm. uh, and that that being a problem for, you know, it made the software industry less less profitable. Hold on, just a second, Paul. I got to turn off my dehumidifier. Yep. Sorry about that. That's all right. Now, speaking of the downfall of the Amiga, I think that you could you could write a book about all the, the factors that uh, contributed to the downfall. But um, what was you know thinking about you know the CD underbelly of software piracy in your area? Mm. I mean, were you coming across you know guys that had you know tons of uh, you know copied games, and did you copy games, or were you yeah. on straight and narrow? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, it was very common. Now, I hope there's no one from any. Uh, Software houses from back <laughs> I think in you're 1992 be okay. listening. <laughs> but yeah, no, I used to, I, I used to copy games and copied games, like most games, a lot of games I would buy, particularly the games I really wanted. And the ones you tended to, to copy would be the, the kind of extra games that you weren't really sure of, but you'd say, oh yeah, I'd love to have a go at it. And you'd, you'd copy it. There was also a, um, a mail order house uh, in Australia, in uh, Melbourne, and what they used to do was, you would you would join up with them, and they'd send you out in the mail lists of all these games that they had available, and they were five dollars per disc, and every game that came out, they would they would copy it and they would wow. sell it. So it was really. Um, Blatant. And yeah, really overt. Yeah. How did they? Uh, how did they evade the authorities? I guess the authorities well, just didn't care. <laughs> yeah, they just didn't. It just wasn't seen as um, 
it wasn't seen as a big deal back then, you know? Like, people didn't see it as theft or anything like that back then. In fact, this, um, this, this supplier, they also had a, a house where they operated from and you could go directly to them and they had a whole lot of Amiga set up and you could, you could buy games. And apparently, a lot of police used to go in. There was a police <laughs> station not far away and they'd, they'd go in and they'd buy games. So, yeah, totally I, was just saying, different. I was just a different world back then. People didn't realize that what they were doing was, you know, it was, I mean, I think in the back, maybe in the back of some people's minds, they were thinking, boy, you know, maybe I, I should be supporting the people that did this stuff. But like you said, there were so many games to try. And since there was no really demo way to get a demo of a game, that was the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah, interesting to the, 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 um, you could get some demos, you know, on the cover discs mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, yeah, but it was interesting this, this computer store. I remember there was one particular game that was really big. It was Monkey Island 2. And I think it came on, it was either 11 or 12 discs back mm-hmm. then. And I remember this when this shop when they sent their list out for that month, and they said Monkey Island two, uh, twelve discs, and then it said you're probably better off just buying the original version because five dollars times twelve is sixty dollars, so you might as well just buy it from the shop rather than pay five dollars a disc from us. <laughs> so that 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 was the one game where it it made sense just to buy the the real version rather than um, pay you $5 a disc right. for the copied version. Now, did the original yeah. version come on that many discs too, or was it just because yeah. of the track? Okay. Yeah, it had that many discs. I, I did buy that game, and it was, yeah, it was a lot of disc swapping. That is an insane w- amount of disc swapping. That is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is, because you wonder, like, if you're selling software on 12 discs, you know, those floppies weren't all that reliable. So I wonder what percentage of people were returning games to the store if just one disc wasn't had an error on it? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can that, only imagine. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the returns department's course back then with, with games were so much different than now. You know, you could even return a game if you didn't like it, and, and they just return it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would never uh, work now. Yeah, once the, um, once the shrink wrap is broken, yeah. It's yours forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, yeah. these days, uh, are you still? Uh, are, is there anything local going on around Melbourne as far as the Amiga scene? Yeah, there's a few. Uh, there's maybe one or two groups that I've heard of, but I've never actually gone along to a meeting. I suspect it's you know just a small group of guys meeting at someone's house mm-hmm. or at the pub, that kind of thing. Uh, I haven't heard of anything really professionally arranged or any kind of convention um, in Melbourne. I think there was something in maybe Adelaide for the the 30th anniversary of the Amiga, like there's been in England and in America. But but apart from that, no, there isn't um, that much going on. There's a fair few collectors like when i'm on the the forums you know i bump into quite a lot of people from australia Mm -hmm. but it's pretty casual i think in terms of people getting together right right all right well uh 
that is really all the questions that I could think of. Is there anything um, that you'd like to any any special Amiga memory that you haven't shared yet that you'd like to you'd like to share? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking. I remember. Um, yeah, the Amiga 3000T. Do, have you do you remember the the Amiga 3000T? I don't think so. That was an Amiga 3000 in this massive tower case, and it had like it had about seven drive bays, and it had you know six Zorro slots, and that that was the machine which was absolutely uh, crazy at the time. You know, it was mm-hmm. just a, the hugest uh, Amiga. You could imagine. And I remember this one article, I think it was in Amiga World, and they called it the ultimate Amiga. And what what they did was they took an Amiga 3000T and then they added in the the best accelerator they could, which would have been a 68040, like 25 megahertz or 33 megahertz or something like that. You know, flick a fixer, and then they added... Uh, as much RAM as they could to the accelerator, and then they added more RAM to the some of the Zorro slots. <laughs> and the whole point of it was just, just for them to adding every every possible add-on they could to make it, you know, the most amazing Amiga ever. So I always remember that story and and drooling over that particular machine that they had put together. But I think they calculated the the total cost of of that machine. And it was something like twenty five thousand US oh dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so with great speed comes at a price, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But it was an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. was the was the three thousand the the four thousand had a big tower too, right? Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting, you know, because there was the four thousand desktop, and then there was the four thousand T. The 4000T, though, came out uh, two years after the, the desktop. The desktop was, was 1992, and the tower was 1994. So as you can imagine, 1994 was a very interesting year for Commodore. <laughs> Obviously, that was, you know, the end. That was yeah, when they declared that was bankruptcy. Yeah. So this 4000 apparently they only ever sold about two, 200 of them because they came out within a, f- a few weeks before Commodore uh, went under. So apparently they sold about 200 and there is almost none of them out there in the, the marketplace. Obviously, people, some people have got them, but I've only ever seen one for sale uh, once. You know, so a very, it's very a bit rare of a machine. Grail for, uh, yeah, ESCOM released it again, and there's lots of the ESCOM ones, but the Commodore ones is, yeah, you just never see them. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that hardware that you never see, you know, the the unicorn of of hardware. The other the other thing that's interesting is there was um, an accelerator for the Amiga 500. And that had a, um, it was the best accelerator ever produced, and it was produced by, I think, um, Progressive Peripherals, P and PS, they used to call themselves. And it was a 68040. So, you know, an amazing uh, processor in that, 
accelerator and it fitted internally into the Amiga 500. Uh, and this is another one where you just never see one for sale. I just, they, they barely exist. But apparently with, with that one, the, the company who made it, um, they were, they started producing them. And then they had this huge fire in their warehouse. Mm. So in the end, not, not many of them were made and they were so expensive that obviously not many people bought them either. They were, I think about a thousand dollars, particularly to put, Put that in, a, in an Amiga 500. <laughs> yeah, a machine that cost you know less than half of what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd wonder who who is the target market for a thousand dollar accelerator in your yeah yeah your basic home computer. So now so here's a question so, for you. Um, in Australia, what was there any kind of hardware or software development being done for the Amiga? There was a few things. Yeah, I remember. Um, I think probably the most famous bit of Amiga hardware to come out of Australia was the the Phoenix board. And the Phoenix board was a replacement motherboard for the Amiga 1000. And I think it um it brought it up to more or less Amiga 2000 specs, quite possibly higher. I can't really remember exactly what kind of specifications it brought it up, brought it up to. Um, but I think it, it fixed all the, the kickstart issues in terms of the Omega 1000 required a disc for kickstart and it, it fixed up a whole lot of, of issues that people might have had with the, the 1000. And I think that today is a very rare piece of hardware as well, that, that drop in board. I think a lot of people, you know, really want that, that Phoenix board. Mm-hmm. And I think even, I think there might even be accelerators made for that board as well. You can, you can plug into it. Oh wow! So the peripheral had peripherals. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fairly sure of that. Yeah. Huh. So that was made in um, in Adelaide, in Australia, from what I recall. Yeah. Awesome. The software, I don't remember much. I don't really recall any any software that was that was produced in Australia. Although, actually, there was one one bit of software, and one of the fa- most famous bits of software ever for the Amiga, which was um, the SysInfo, System Info. So System Info is a piece of software which you run and it tells you all about the internals of your Amiga. Mm -hmm. And the coolest thing about this software uh, is, particularly for today's Amiga users, it tells you the speed of your Amiga and it compares it to a whole lot of other machines like the, the A500, the 3000, 2000, 4000. So if you've got an accelerated Amiga, it, it compares them all. And then it gives you a comment like, you know, um, kick ass or, <laughs> or phone me now, you know, if it's really, if it's a fast machine. Right. So, and that software, I, you just see it all over the place. You know, it's, it was written by a guy called, uh, Nick Wilson, and he was, I think, in Toowoomba. So, so yeah, there was some some well known software that came from Australia. Awesome. Well, that's that's really cool. That program actually sounds really neat. 
because um, you know one of the the big complaints you hear from Amiga users all the time is that you know you buy for example you know the one meg expansion for the 500 and uh, you know all the games were supposed to look totally different and awesome and then you know a lot of times it would just the only thing that would be different was you'd see the splash screen that said you know RAM expansion detected and then it starts to actually have you know some positive reinforcement for all this extra money you're blowing on your machine yeah <laughs> yeah I know I know what you mean there was some some funny things that that used to happen there. Like I know uh, some software that came out, which would say uh, would have a big sticker on it and it would say AGA. Mm-hmm. So you would think, yeah, this has got a whole lot of colours and everything, but it, it wasn't. It would just run on an ordinary <laughs> machine. You know? Brilliant marketing on their part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them, some of those games. Just use the ordinary colors, but they might have needed the two meg, but they still just said AGA because right. the AGA was the selling point, you know. Yeah. But you yeah. think you're getting amazing graphics when you're buying the game, <laughs> you know, but maybe you weren't. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, yeah, it's great to be here, John. Yeah. It's uh, it's been a great. Uh, I've I've loved to hear about you know the Amiga in the Australia for all all the people that are, are listening. If you live in another country that is not the United States or Australia, and uh, you'd like to be interviewed, shoot me an an email at amigos at amigospodcast dot com. And uh, for everybody else, thanks for listening, Paul. Thank you again. Thank you, John. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, Paul. Bye, bye.